don't believe, I always think that all this bullshit about to provoke you a little bit more, this is superstitious logic. It's pure ideology. You know this ecological bullshit, like... So, hello, and welcome to the end of the world. This is Anthropocene's episode two. I'm Matt. I'm Will. And today we're going to be talking about uh, Paul Schrader's 2017 film, First Reformed, as we mentioned on the previous episode. And just a a quick caveat, I have been sick the past few days, so if I end up, uh, you know, hacking up along during the show, I'll try to edit that out. Um, But... As I mentioned today, we're talking about First Reformed, and where we're going to start out, I think, is talking about reactions to the film, which is usually, you know, it's backwards of the way people would normally do it, um, but there's an especially good review that was in the journal N Plus One that you wanted to mention. Yeah, um, I, it, I, it's a good review in that it is provides a good jumping off point for a conversation, Um and it's a good review in the sense that the review really likes the movie, but we're going to have, I think, a lot to say about this review, both good and bad. Um, so the review in N Plus One, this is the uh, uh, volume number 32, Bad Faith, uh, Fall 2018. Uh, here's just a little sampler from this review. Schrader's first reformed, shot in the classic square aspect ratio, doesn't get as physically close to its, char- to its characters, but aims higher than you were never really here, a review, uh, a movie he was just talking about earlier. Seeking to reestablish and dramatize the deep connections between environmental collapse, capitalism, and despair. As a self-avowed proponent of transcendental style in film, the name of a book Paul Schrader wrote in 1972, Schrader goes about his mission in stark fashion, barely moving the camera and focusing on one minister's story in a small community in upstate New York. It is a hard-boiled, wintry film that explodes into desperation. Schrader contrasts the film's simple meeting house, built in plain style with the megachurch that owns it. The big church funds the smaller one, keeping it intact for historical purposes that appeal to tourists more than parishioners. Parishioners? Yeah, <laughs> I believe so. I got super self-conscious there. Uh, Parishioners. Parishioners. Ethan Hawke's tortured minister runs it for an uh, runs it for an expansive, welcoming pastor played with warmth and understanding by Cedric the Entertainer Kyles. We're gonna have some things to say about the nature of that warmth and understanding. At least <laughs> I will. Uh, do they serve the same God? Hawke, it might be said, represents serious cinema. Art, Kyle's is Hollywood, box office. The secular religion of the movies reflects what has happened to American religion. Both blockbuster Hollywood and megachurch fundamentalism reflect the corporatization of everything into inhuman systems of exploitation, posing as spectacular entertainment. And here's here's the real point, I think, of the um, for us of this review. He says many films on religion are murky about what they believe. First Reformed is clear. It is too late to fix things. People can only be comforted and soothed into ignoring how the planet is doomed. (laughs) And that's the part where he kind of uh, loses the plot, I think. Yeah, and and then we'll skip to the end of this review. uh, And he's talking about 
uh, Ethan Hawke, and he says he has avoided the pitfalls of blockbuster franchises and kiddie movies, instead choosing to work with worthwhile directors, including Richard Linklater, the auteur he is most identified with. Once seen as a proto-James Franco because of his novel-writing sideline and the post-Dead Poet Society arty pretty roles that culminated in Reality Bites, Hawk has proved himself capable of decency and honesty on screen, and he didn't even have to go to six grad schools to do it. And I only mention that to... I only mention that the reviewer um, you know, goes into that territory because... There's something a little bit crazy in my mind, just to get the conversation started here, about the idea that in the same uh, in the same review, it is conceded that there's nothing to be done about climate change. The world is becoming uninhabitable, and yet it is worth mentioning that uh, oh, Ethan Hawke's. Uh, Career didn't fall into the James Franco pitfalls. Like, who fucking cares? Um, like, th- that a film review in a respected journal both concedes there's nothing to be done about the dying planet and gives tabloid esque opinions on James Franco and Ethan Hawke's career trajectories is troubling. Uh, yeah. Although, I, I will say that it is. It is nice that uh, the author of this review does talk about the unique kind of camera style and the unique kind of filmmaking going on. That's kind of, that's the one part where I'm on board with what he's saying. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, It's, and and what's strange is he loves it. This reviewer loves it. Um, And he gets a lot of the uh, technical, uh, I don't want to say proficiency, the technical uh, intelligence of what you know, the themes that Schrader is getting at um, through his use of, you know, aspect ratio and things like that. Uh, Yeah, it's all, that review gets that down. But I think it misses the, (laughs) I think it misses like the central metaphor of the movie, which is that uh, Toller's cancer, stomach cancer, is to his body what, what, global warming climate change is to the earth um, and so if you miss that yeah I guess I guess if you miss that you're going to think that this movie exists on a very surface level and it's about a 46 year old man and a, and, a, and a pregnant woman starting a relationship some like transgressive right right or yeah um, and of course it is but he, the reviewer himself, uh, refers to Schrader's book, Transcendental Style and Film. And so he should know, just based on the title alone, that a transcendental style means you're going to use material, sort of surface-level things to point to higher truths. And I've actually got it marked here in, in a book we referred to last time, I think maybe I got the title wrong last time I was listening to it. I said Wilderness in the American Imagination. It's Wilderness in the American Mind by Roderick Fraser Nash. Uh, and he's explaining, in a chapter on Thoreau, Nash is explaining transcendentalism. And I think it's, it's a good way to understand transcendental style. 
he says, the core of transcendentalism was the belief that a correspondence or parallelism existed between the higher realm of spiritual truth and the lower one of material objects. Uh, Emerson says, nature is the symbol of the spirit. The world is emblematic. So if you use that sort of working definition of transcendental, there's really no excuse to miss, you know, that this movie made by the guy who literally wrote the book on transcendental (laughs) style and film, uh, you know, might be, might be using these sort of uh, practical circumstances to, to get at higher, higher truths. Yeah. And, and we can just start at the very, you know, opening of the film Yeah, to talk about how he's doing that because the opening credits are not what you expect from this film where it's very, you have that classic kind of Hollywood style. You have whatever that aspect ratio is called. It's just a box. Four, four by three, I guess. Four, yeah. Something like that. Yeah. And uh, you have the, even the font, which is that kind of classic sort of, kind of calligraphy like yeah. curly Q yeah 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 Fan, just fancy sort of uh, uh, what is it? it it does remind you of it's like you're watching Gone with the Wind or exactly something. exactly classic Hollywood sort of thing and it's kind of pointing at this idea that it, the kind of the filminess of the film right saying this is a Hollywood production this is kind of like what we were talking about last episode almost said last semester because that's how institutionalized I am. But uh, last episode, um, <clears throat> which is how can a Hollywood film ever carry any sort of you know, grain of truth or resistance or whatever it may be. Um, and I think this is one example of Schrader trying to do it, of saying, I'm going to open this completely kind of out there film that the general public isn't going to watch. This isn't you know, Avengers seven, this is, uh, Ethan Hawke struggling with, you know, despair for two hours, <laughs> right. um, dying of, of stomach cancer. Right. Um, but we're going to open up with these flashy kind of throwback, make cinema great again, title cards. Yeah. Um, so I was telling you, I watched it again last night on my phone and weirdly, I had the volume too high because it was like late and and my my phone volume was just high. And I noticed during the uh, opening credits, it didn't really make sense as an explanation. Like it was late, so my phone. Yeah, that's what I was like. What uh, I'm saying is, as it tends to be. What I'm saying is, it was because it was late. You like to party, I guess. So because it was late and my volume happened to be turned up, it was. It was very. Uh, it was much louder than I expected it to be on my phone, and so I noticed during the credits that there is there are like uh, crickets or birds and just a sort of general hum of of nature during the credits, and it's and it's that dark scene that sort of uh, the camera sort of slowly coming into the, the church building, in. and it is genuinely haunting. With the noise, I mean, it's creepy enough with the with the visuals. Yeah, it's not a nice looking church. It's but, dingy. It's right. Old. It but looks that's like you're the Exorcist. The last night was the Exorcist. The fourth time I've seen it, and I had never noticed how prominent that sound is when yeah. when it's opening. Um, maybe it's because I have a little bit of hearing loss, but I don't know. <laughs> how great would it be if I was like, "What are you talking about? There's no sound." <laughs> um, but 
I'm glad you mentioned that because in this um, looking at interviews with uh, Schrader and Ethan Hawke and uh, Cedric the Entertainer, um, which is always fun to say. Credited as Cedric Kyles. Here, Cedric the Entertainer Kyles. Yeah. Um, they were uh, Schrader was talking about his approach to making the film, and we've already kind of touched on uh, the camera stuff. So no pan, no tilt. There aren't any over the shoulder shots. The camera remains stationary, and he mentioned that he would have to frame the shot. So if a character had to stand up from a chair, they had to fit in the frame, that kind of stuff. Yeah. But also that there's no real music. There's only there's singing. There's diegetic music. Yes. But there's really no non-diegetic music. Um, so I never noticed that. That's interesting. But Schrader did mention that there are a few instances where he has these kind of soundscapes. So what you're talking about. And I can't... He named the dude that, that made them, and I can't remember. Oh, yeah. There's these sort of uh, um, ominous... Yeah. It's like while he's watching the... Uh, while he's on the computer, watching the video of the suicide bomber. Yes. Yeah. And uh, the funny thing, you were talking about the, the kind of nature sounds that are sort of at the beginning. Um, Schrader mentioned that one of the sounds he knows for sure was a clip of pigs and the guy that had made it had sort of slowed it down and chopped and screwed it and made it all, all a crazy wow uh, you know Brian Eno soundscapey yeah. so that's uh, sort of explaining why that is and the use the use of no music I never really thought about it before but the way he described it was that it's to keep or it's to give the audience or put more of the onus of understanding and interacting with the film on the audience so you're not being you know led into your emotions you have to decide how you feel about it from scene to scene it's also confident filmmaking oh definitely you know what i'm saying because he doesn't feel like he has to trick you into feeling the emotion he wants you to feel yeah and he he said uh, i wrote down a couple of the, the little phrases he used he called them uh you know manipulating the the audience with music said it was a recessive withholding technique and he said movies are needy so movies you're like you have to feel excited you have to feel suspense you know whatever mm -hmm. it is whereas he said what he was trying to do was ask them to come into the movie sort of let them do it on their own terms and that can be I think alienating for a lot of viewers when a film doesn't give you those signposts I, I think this movie and I remember talking to Corey about this, saying, uh, I really appreciate this movie's boldness in both its formal aspects of it's in 4 by 3 like you said, there's there's very little music, uh, the bold, and it's about climate change, just unabashedly about yes. climate change. And, and it's Schrader at the top of his game, just like, fuck you, watch this. You know what I'm saying? Like, uh, there's no there's no neediness there. It's if, if you're watching, it's because you want to. I, I think the the review in N plus one mentions that when he saw this, the reviewer saw this in the theater, several people walked out, and he said they were mostly older people. <laughs> yeah, um, I can definitely see that. And something else, Schrader mentioned that uh, I'll just kind of mention real quick is that he tends to write the same kind of movie every decade or so is what he said so like taxi driver he, he starts with this idea of a of a man in a room with a notebook writing 
and he has some sort of emotion, some way he feels mm-hmm. about the world. So he's angry, whatever it may be, and he said now he's gotten to Toller, and he's in the room, and he's writing the journal, but he feels despair, and right. he's you know, trying to deal with all these terrible things. And and you can't really overstate the importance, and, and Schrader, again, I just keep <laughs> heaping praise on him like I... Like I'm super familiar with his films. I've only seen Taxi Driver. I think I saw The Canyons, the one with Lindsay Lohan, um, and, <laughs> and one, this one. Yeah, that one was kind of like softcore porny. Well, it you it had James Dean, the the porn star guy. But uh, uh, I keep heaping praise on him, like like I'm super familiar with him, but I'm not. Um, but you can't really overestimate the role Taxi Driver. And the audience's knowledge of Paul Schrader as the dude who wrote Taxi Driver uh, has on this film because we are geared up for the bloodbath at the end of First Reformed that we got in Taxi Driver because the parallels are there. And it makes the ending so much more powerful uh, in First Reformed. Uh, because he's playing on our expectations of of a bloody you know massacre, like like at the end of Taxi Driver. Yeah, that's good. I, I didn't really think about it like that, but that makes a lot of sense. Um, I, I've seen Autofocus, weirdly enough, which is the movie where Greg Kinnear played Bob Crane from Hogan's Heroes. Who uh, <laughs> I have no idea what you're talking about really? at all. <laughs> Bob Crane from Hogan's Heroes. He was very into. He was like early amateur porn guy, and him and his friend would have sex with girls and film it. And then eventually his friend, uh, like, murdered him while he was sleeping, like, caved his head in with a, a camera lens or something like that. Wow. Uh, pre- yeah, so pretty interesting Hollywood story there. Sounds about as funny as First Reformed. Oh, definitely. And it's Greg Kinnear, so it's kind of, he's sort of an interesting he, Yeah, <laughs> he, he occupies a, an interesting space uh, as celebrity. It's like your, he's like your friend's dad. Just was in a few movies once. Right. Uh, yeah, so the back to the opening of the film, it's something to, to mention real quick. Uh, we have to try to get past the opening and get to the rest of it. But the just one thing I wanted to, to bring up is the sign. Because, uh, you know, we mentioned the church kind of has this dingy kind of look of disuse about it. Mm-hmm. And there's a historical marker in front of it like you see, like on the side of the highway or something. Sure, sure. It's a you know New York State historical marker, and it has you know organized 1757, built 1801, and then it has something that I didn't notice the first time I watched it because I didn't know to look for it. But it says below the little description of the church, it says an abundant life historical church. So you have this idea of kind of being uh, history is sponsored. History has a corporate sponsor, yeah, uh, which is a, a theme that goes throughout yeah. the rest. And of the you film. see, you see that explicitly uh, that hierarchy uh, explicitly in Toller's research of the bulk industries, and you realize it sort of goes uh, corporation, megachurch, church, um, and yet they are all encapsulated. Uh, it, by the grasp of of the of the corporation, yeah. Um, and just a, I, I don't know why you would listen to this if you haven't seen the film, 
but the whole central kind of conflict is Ernst Toller, Ethan Hawke's character, uh, is the pastor at First Reform Church, which is a Dutch Reform Church, I learned, which I didn't know anything about the Dutch Reform Church. Um, but it has been, it's basically um, a church that no one attends anymore, and it's been bought up by this mega church, which living in the South, we're very familiar with the mega church as a, a staple of the community. Yes. And so it's been bought up by Abundant Life, which is uh, the, the mega church in question. And they basically keep it open as a tourist destination, as a sort of way to make some tourist money on the side. Mm-hmm. They um, call it the... The souvenir the shop. souvenir shop. Right. Uh, which is funny because when uh, Cedric the Entertainer's character, uh, Joel Jeffers, who's the, the pastor at the mega church, is talking to, to Toller about it. And he says, uh, oh, what do they call it? The And he calls it something else. The gift shop. The gift shop. The, the, the museum. The museum. The museum. Yeah. He, he says, calls the museum. They call, it, they call it the souvenir shop. Toller very sheepishly, sheepishly. Yeah, they call it the souvenir shop. Um, so that's kind of the general conceit. And there's you know, more that will come out as we talk about it. But yeah, that's the opening, and we, we sort of uh, see a communion happening, a Sunday service that Toller is leading. A uh, very small congregation. We learn that a few of the people in the congregation are important, so we have uh, Esther, who we'll talk more about. Um, but more importantly for the story, the, the Mensanas. So Mike and Mary Mensana. Uh, Mary Mensana, played by Amanda Seyfried, who I'm going to try to pronounce that correctly. Um <laughs> And as this is happening, as this ceremony, this uh, service is happening, we get Toller's voiceover, which is one of the more important um, kind of traditional filmmaking things that Schrader mm-hmm. does. Uh, but it works really well, whereas in other movies it can be kind of kind of uh, strained. And I think part of why it works is because it's Toller writing in this journal that he's decided to keep for, for one year. Um, and so that's kind of how we get to know him, is through this kind of constructed act of writing in this journal, which makes it a little bit, adds a few layers to it that I think it wouldn't have if it was just him kind of talking. Right. You you mentioned earlier the filminess of the film um, is established there at the beginning, and, and voiceover, like you said, is a, a very filmy film thing to do. Yeah. And uh, another thing we see right off the bat is that his congregation is very small and something the review in M plus one mentions is the sort of analog between well maybe it doesn't mention it implies it I guess the analog between uh, the Schrader if we think of Schrader uh, or Ethan Hawke's character Toller as a sort of mouthpiece for Schrader uh, it's the small congregation size is like Schrader acknowledging his own congregation. Like he realizes <laughs> he's preaching to a very small number of people um, and that he does not inhabit the mega church that, you know, the, the Hollywood blockbuster mega church continuum that uh, uh, Joel Jeffers, Cedric Kyles does. So it's, it's a, a demonstration of of sort of the film's self-awareness and Schrader's self-awareness of, of both audience and the film as uh, a pro- an artificial product. Yeah. And uh, 
continue talking about this, this separation between uh, First Reform, the church, and, and the Abundant Life Church. Um, one thing, uh, it's kind of a, a jokey little line, but I thought it was, uh, I caught it on the second watching, was after the service, and he's talking to uh, John, who's kind of his second-in-command at, at the church that sort of helps him with uh, everyday stuff and plays the organ and stuff like that. And uh, he asked Toller, have you posted the sermon yet? I noticed that last <laughs> night for the first time. Which is, is and, so, and did you notice, a funny idea. Did you notice how Toller responded? Because you only get like half a second's response because Mary walks in and kind of interrupts. Yeah. But his response is a little disdainful. He's like, yeah, yeah did it this morning like, or yeah. something. Yeah. And this idea that you would, he would even have to do that to even post the sermon. It kind of... There's there's six people in the congregation. <laughs> the internet is not clamoring for this service. Yeah, and it's kind of. I guess I get the point of doing it, but at the same time, it kind of negates the whole experience of the service. Um, if you if you're just worried about getting the kernel of the message, I guess, then why even right? Show up? It's it's just about the information. Yeah, you know, it, like you could just listen to this on your drive and get the same out of it as uh, showing up and going, you know, taking the sacrament like like the scene shows them them doing. Uh, yeah, I, I think that's, uh, there's a lot to that that little line. There's, there's several things I noticed on, uh, this is my third or fourth viewing, and uh, it seems weird that they specifically, Mary specifically mentions that she's trying to get Michael to get a job at Home Depot. Yes. <laughs> like, what is that? I, I, yeah, I put that down in my notes of uh, the fact that he's he's kind of working at Home Depot while the world's ending, which right. kind of sounds like a Tom Waits lyric or something. <laughs> right. um, but yeah, that ugh, just it makes me it makes me think of just like a certain generation, my parents, uh, about their fascination with just like HGTV. And, like, there's a certain type of person... Like, lives at Home Depot. ...who their lives are dominated by the never-ending quest of, like, house repairs and house improvement. Uh, I say that. I was at Lowe's earlier today. <laughs> <laughs> Building a suicide vest, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, that, that'll come up later. Uh, but... <clears throat> something else that comes up that's in the same vein of asking if he had posted the sermon is uh, later on when the um, Toller and Jeffers are talking about the reconsecration ceremony for the 200th anniversary of First Reform being opened or being built and uh, Toller is saying well you know we, we don't have very much space so we can't have a whole lot of people and Jeffers says well we'll, we'll simulcast it online so that's 5,000 seats so a five thousand seat megachurch, mm-hmm. which is just obscene to think about. Yeah, and the the shots we get of it, it's this huge, like imposing auditorium. Um, right, and it, it has a. I didn't put this together the first couple times I watched it when he has lunch with Esther. They're eating in the church. Yeah, it's a cafeteria. It's a cafeteria in the church in, yeah. on the campus of right. this church right. that has the Bible verses that. And I don't know if this is what's happening, but it looks like they're being projected on the wall. Is it? Are they being projected, or is it like a 
like a work of art sort of thing. And see, I thought it was art the first time, but the second time it looked kind of like a projection, which would be even even better because they, they change it every day yeah. or whatever. What's interesting though is I didn't get a chance to look up what the verses were, but it's the verses in the Bible that read like the fucking communist manifesto. It's about like <laughs> everyone eating as a community and sharing everything equally and uh, easier for a camel to enter the eye of a needle I, I don't, I, I, into heaven. I can't remember exactly what it is but it is uh, it is I think the verses are chosen to emphasize the church's hypocrisy um, as a sort of a clearly wealthy institution tied up with private corporation a, a private corporation yeah, and, and something that I I want to take credit for, but I won't. Um, I found it on a uh, a website, and I want to say the website was called Father Son Holy Gore or something like that. Um, and this is this guy who goes by this pen name of Father Gore. Kind of found it randomly on Google, but he made this. Um, he writes movie reviews, and he made this. Uh, he noticed this thing that I missed, which is when. Toller is walking into the church for the first time and you get that big shot of the Abundant Life logo on the floor because he's walking toward you. It's upside, it's upside down. down. I so noticed it's that, that last that inversion. Night. Yes. Um, it's, know, the, like, it's the, it's, yeah, it's the opposite of Abundant Life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, I'm glad, I'm glad uh, you brought that up because I, that, that registered in my mind last night but I would have never remembered it. Yeah, so shout out to Father Gore. Yeah. Uh, I followed him on Twitter for that because I was like, that's good. I'm going to mention that. <laughs> yeah. Um, but just the, in just the names, too, of abundant life versus... Because mm-hmm. First Reform sounds like a church. You're like, oh, yeah, that's the church down on the corner of... And, uh, abundant whatever. life. Yeah, uh, abundant life is certainly meant to evoke connections to the prosperity, health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. Yeah. Uh, it's like a a veiled suggestion of wealth. You will have abundance if you, you know, join this church. It, which which they talk about in that scene where Toller's with like the youth group. Oh, and, yeah, and I want to talk more about that. Yeah, that's got, my favorite scene, I think, in the film. We gotta get into that. Um, but just the the idea that abundant life, the very phrase, is kind of the inverse of the Anthropocene as a concept. Which is this fact that you know things are finite and mm-hmm. becoming more finite as as climate change speeds along, uh, versus this idea of everything's okay, we have abundant life, like we're going to keep living and having it all forever, um, and it it goes right along with uh, toward the end of the film when Jeffers is confronting Toller and he says Jesus doesn't want our suffering. He also says. Um... Jeffers says it's a it's in like a filmed message that Jeffers is like recording for I guess he's recording a sermon or something. Yeah. He says uh Jesus was never anxious. <laughs> you know, oh, Jesus yeah. Jesus does not did not worry. He was our Lord was never anxious. Uh, oh yeah, he says um Jesus didn't worry into worry is not a size a sign of wisdom, it's mm-hmm. a sign of wickedness. Mm-hmm. If you if you're anxious and you worry and it's and it's inter- This might be a good place to transition to uh, uh, the we have, before we started recording. We started talking about the names, the sort of allegory of, of biblical names in the film, and it's important. I think that uh, uh, 
Jeffro's first name is Joel, which I was just saying, uh, I didn't even remember was a book in the Bible uh, until I remembered I was reading that Nash, Wilderness and the American Mind, and he uses a uh, quote from Joel. And Joel, I did a little did a little research, and now I'm blanking on who the hell Joel was. Um, he's a minor prophet. I, I remember that phrase coming up a lot. Um, but if I'm not mistaken, I remember thinking that uh, Jeffers was given the first name Joel, ironically in the film. Uh, okay, here, yeah, I, I looked it up, and I was look. Um, I found this website by the popular uh, preacher Charles Swindle or Swindle, the aptly <laughs> named Swindle. Swindle. Uh, and I, I don't really know much about this guy. I've just heard his name. I know he's got a lot of books published. So it's, this is not like super credible in term, like in an academic sense, but I do think it probably gives a pretty good impression of what people believe and associate with these things. So in this sense, I think this guy's probably a, a decent source. Uh, and he, th- this uh, website, which was uh, insight.org, uh, okay. it's Charles Swindle's website, uh, was explaining Joel, the book of Joel. And he says that it gives some of the most striking and specific details in all of Scripture about the day of the Lord, which is a, a term for like judgment. Uh, days cloaked in darkness, armies that conquer like consuming fire, and the moon turning to blood it makes clear the seriousness of God's judgment on sin. The day of the Lord is a reference not to a single day, but a period of judgment and restoration. Uh, it consists of three basic features, judgment of God's people, judgment of foreign nations, and the purification and restoration of God's people through intense suffering. So clearly Joel is, uh, you know, named ironically in the film or to suggest his hypocrisy in that the guy preaching the prosperity gospel is named after, you know, the guy who preached the opposite purification through suffering. Um, so I think there's definitely going something going on there. Or like maybe a connection to Joel Osteen. Joel Osteen. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, I meant to bring that up too as the quintessential megachurch preacher. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, Health, wealth, prosperity, gospel, for oh, sure. Yeah. What, what's the name of, of the one in town, our <laughs> major prosperity uh, gospel guy? Oh, it's not a megachurch, but there's one called the Destiny Center. Yeah. And they were, that family, whose name I can't recall right now, was on that E! show uh, called... Lifestyles of the the rich lifestyles and the of the rich and faithful, which is oh my god, yeah, Jesus proud, wept. proud to be a Murfreesboroan, <laughs> dude, with his massive house and his eighty trucks, right, right, that right now on that church sign out front, it's advertising a prophet. It's like Thursday, come see Fred Brame, prophet, <laughs> Fred. I'm pretty sure it's Brame or Brahm. I hope he has business cards that say Fred Brame Profit. Profit. They ought to spell it P-R-O-F-I-T. It's got that uh, the emoji that's got the dollar sign for eyes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but the Creflo Dollar. That ties into the um, the youth group scene, so we can just sort of jump around. But Toller 
helping out with the youth group at the Abundant Life uh, Mega Church, and sitting in the circle with these young kids and their their cool young hip youth pastor who's got like the long hair and all that. He's got tattoos, tattoos, yeah, yeah. his tight T-shirt, and it opens on the kid, um, one of the kids in the group talking about how since he's taken Christ into his heart, his life has gotten so much better and he's happier. And he says, which I think is a big clue for where this is going to go. He says, I even got a raise at work. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the next girl who decides to share talks about her father. And she says, well, my father, he witnesses more than anybody. He's a true believer, but he got laid off at work. Did he do something wrong? And the youth pastor looks like he doesn't know what to say. And so he turns to Toller and he's like, oh, you guys remember Reverend Toller? Right, right. Do you want to take this one? Because you can kind of tell, you can see his wheels turning. And he's he's thinking, not prepared for that. No, and he his belief system probably leads him to think, well, yeah, probably. Right, like your father probably did something wrong. Like, right. I have no... I said, yeah, be, and we're led to believe that because he just keeps affirming what the guy before her, her uh-huh. says, which is uh, basically, I got a raise because I'm doing all these... Uh, you know, I'm following my religious path correctly. Yeah. Yeah. And Toller uh, steps in, tries to give her this, you know, kind of wise answer. Jesus wasn't about money. He says, uh, you know, Jesus is. There was no dollar sign on his pulpit. Yeah. And there was no American flag either. No American flag either. And I want to, I want to talk about the um, military presence in this film at some point too. But then this shithead kid, um, you can tell he's like future Republicans of America, MAGA kid, <laughs> uh, MAGA chud kid. And he just pipes up and says, well, Christians shouldn't succeed. He's like, oh, well, all Christians should be poor and right. meek like, and mild and all this. Slippery slope. This leads directly to taking prayer out of the schools. Like, yeah. it's clear he's Can't just... Can't piss re- off the Muslims. Repeating all these sort of platitudes, yeah. And, uh... And what's funny is that it cuts his rant short, and it's kind of this idea of, well, we can fill in the blanks from here, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, right? So, like, Schrader's saying, well, you know where this is going. And then we cut to Toller and Jeffers in the cafeteria again, talking about what had happened, and Toller's saying, well, this kid treated me like I took a shit on the American flag. Right. And Jeffers is like, well, they just want certainty. We have to lead by example. Mm -hmm. Um, And then he said something that I thought stuck out like a sore thumb which was jihadism is everywhere even here even here yeah it's like it, of course it has to be imported from from islam it can't just be you know a part of what's happening terrorism yeah 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 um but just this whole and jeffers just shrugs it off and he's like well you know the, they have social media and hyper-violent oh, video games no, he, no that's uh something i wanted to bring up is that he lists the first thing he lists is climate change he says you know, they've grown up in a world we won't recognize. Climate change, hyper-violent video games. Like, like those are two of the same things. You know, like, <laughs> like climate change is one thing in a list of, you know, kind of trivial negative influences on kids. Like, in, in uh, Jeffers' mind, that's... He's not denying climate change, but he is uh, compartmentalizing it, you know. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, there's a... In that, like... Two, those two minutes, there's a lot uh, a lot going on. I think it's interesting. I think right before that scene, it's a voiceover of uh, Toller saying, 
how, how easily they how, talk about prayer. How those who easily have never they talk about prayer, those who have never prayed. Cut to this kid testifying about his prayer life and how it leads to a raise. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I wanted to, about the, uh, the kid, uh, the future Trump supporter um, in the youth group, I, I was reminded of, and this is a book that I just happened to be reading around the time that I first watched First Reformed was The Courage to Be by Paul Tillich. And uh, so I just sort of, whether in good faith or not, I don't know, uh, associate these two uh, works. But but this was written in the 50s. The Courage to Be was written in the 50s. And so it's sort of permeated by the sort of the, the atomic threat, which is... Um, there's a lot of parallels between the rhetoric about the atomic threat and the threat of climate change, uh, not the least of which uh, occurs in the parallelism between the movie First Reformed and Ingmar Bergman's film Winter Light, which is yeah. like First Reformed is is in a lot of ways just a remake of that movie, but instead of climate change, it's the it's like fear of nuclear war. Uh, so that's just one example of that. What I wanted to do, though, with uh, The Courage to Be is read a small, uh, short half a paragraph here about fanaticism uh, with regards to this kid in the youth group. Right. I think this is a great explanation of sort of the psychological uh, uh, reasons for fanaticism. Literate. Uh Tillich writes, Fanaticism is the correlate to spiritual self-surrender. It shows the anxiety which it was supposed to conquer by attacking with disproportionate violence those who disagree and who demonstrate by their disagreement elements in the spiritual life of the fanatic which he must suppress in himself. Because he must suppress them in himself, he must suppress them in others. His anxiety forces him to persecute dissenters. The weakness of the fanatic is that those whom he fights have a secret hold upon him, and to this weakness he and his group finally succumb. Oh, the idea of suppressing things in yourself that you see in the fanatic. Kind yeah, of, yeah. I think can be directly applied here to this idea of being aware of climate change, but like you said, compartmentalizing it and sort of sending it to the, the back of your mind. Um, as opposed to Toller, who's very much <clears throat> throughout the whole film, or at least after he meets Mike, is very much at the front of his mind and kind of the, the thing he is most concerned about. Yeah, I think Michael's Michael's a complicated, um, a, a complicated character. Um, well, since we're talking about fanaticism, we can just talk about him, I guess. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, since he's. And and here's so another uh, another thought about fanaticism uh, related to climate change. I found in this book I just started last night, "The Uninhabitable Earth," uh, David Wallace Wells, which just <clears throat> just came out last week. <clears throat> Excuse me. I'm the uh, sick one. I'm the one that coughs on this podcast. Yeah, sorry. Let me get a <coughs> sip of the sacrament there. Um, this, I think, is, is important to the idea of fanaticism, to sort of complicate the idea of fanaticism. Uh, David Wallace Wells writes, Rhetoric often fails us on climate, 
because the only factually appropriate language is of a kind we've been trained by a buoyant culture of sunny side up optimism to dismiss categorically as hyperbole. But here the facts are hysterical. So that, like I said, I think that sort of complicates uh, fanaticism in that Toller, to 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 a lot of people, Toller would be the fanatic. Yeah. Um, but like like this writer suggests, sometimes the facts are uh, hysterical. They're not uh, within the uh, realm you have defined as normal. And so, you know, so there's a lot, a lot there. <clears throat> Which is definitely um, something we get when Toller meets Mike for the first time and spends time with him, which is um, Mike just hits him with a tidal wave of facts and figures about climate change. And it's kind of funny because I mentioned um, at the, the, the uh, youth group, they cut off the kid before his rant really gets going. They do the same thing with Mike. Great he, point. He starts yeah. going off on, you know, scientists have predicted, and he hits us with percentages and numbers, and mm-hmm. it, it kind of cuts him off, or it kind of interjects Toller's voiceover. And Toller just uh, summarizes for us. He says, yeah. rising sea levels, climate refugees, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Like you said, fill in the blank. You you know this already. And I just love when he, uh, he comes into the house and he sits down with Mike. <laughs> the first thing he says was, I've heard things have been getting you down. <laughs> it's like, you know, such a massive understatement. And and Mike, I really liked their inter- interaction. It's one of my favorite parts of the film because Mike, you can see him trying to kind of trap Toller in these kind of logic, not mm-hmm. things. So he asks him how old he is. And, uh, and Mike says, well, in my child, if it's born... Will be thirty three in twenty fifty. You'll be eighty, whatever. Eighty, right? Yeah. And he uses that as a springboard to say, you know, these th- are things that are happening or going to happen in your lifetime. He talks about, um, you know, unlivability, a child full of hopes and naive belief. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, looking at you and saying, "You knew this all along, didn't you?" And you know, how can you live with that? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and and Toller just happens to be this perfect foil. Yeah. To you know, to this rhetoric, uh, because of his background with his, you know, with his own child. Yeah, and and that's kind of what leads Toller to say what is one of my favorite lines in the film, uh, where he says, well, "The blackness is is not new. Mm-hmm. Like this is not a new predicament that human." Well, human well, and and he acknowledges in. that yes, this specific scale is unprecedented. Yeah. Uh, of. You know this, uh, this sort of. It's almost like the the existential blackness, the sickness unto death, is kind of been like concretized. You know, it's like a it's like physically manifested, like so given a due date. <laughs> yeah, like the idea that when we think of existentialism, we think of a sort of personal, introspective kind of problem psychological problem but now when you hear the word existential it's usually in something related to climate change as an as the existential threat it's a material threat to your existence so like existentialism is normally associated with like a personal psychological phenomenon uh but it's also very much an external physical material 
uh, issue as well. Yeah, and, and you know, Toller, Toller talking about his son, where he comes from a military family, he pushed his son to enlist and go fight after 9-11, and his son dies fighting in Iraq. Um, and getting back to the name, said his son's name was Joseph. And when Toller tells him, he says, the boy threw down the well. Yeah. And then Mike says, well, the dreamer. The dreamer. And that's where Toller's like, oh, yes, yeah, the dreamer. Uh, which I thought was kind of a good... Which is uh, also a clue uh, a clue that we're supposed to be reading, uh, you know, biblical things into the names of everyone else as well. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> so, yeah, like you are saying, Toller's kind of the perfect foil because he has not only lost a child, but it was kind of through his own actions and even says to Mike, uh, bringing a child in this into this world or, or the guilt you feel of bringing a child in can never match the guilt of taking a child out of right, it. Right, so he feels directly responsible for for taking it out, you know, taking the child out of the world. Yeah, and that's when he also it elaborates on this idea that we have courage versus despair. Yeah, he says, he says uh, I think we have a clip of this. Courage is the solution to despair. Reason provides no answers. We can't know what, what the future will bring. We have to choose despite uncertainty. Wisdom is holding two contradictory truths in our mind simultaneously. Hope and despair. A life without despair is a life without hope. Holding these two ideas in our head is life itself. He says the answer to despair is not reason, but courage. Yeah. Which, again, I think merits and, and justifies my simultaneous uh, rating of Tillich, uh, the existential theologian. Yeah. And um, he gives us this kind of math equation, Toller does, of, of hope and despair. That's kind of what makes up life itself. Like those, holding those two things in your head at the same time. Right, right. Is, is yeah, he what says, without despair, there is no hope, vice versa. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, Michael asks him what becomes kind of the central question from then on, which is, can God forgive us for, for what we've done to his creation? Mm-hmm. Um, and Toller's response is, well, no one can know the mind of God, but you can live a righteous life or try to live a righteous life. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so that leads us into you know a million other questions of well, what is a righteous life? What does it look like? Um, how do you do it? Yeah, that's a. Uh, how do you get from a? I think this is like a thought from Wendell Berry. How do you get from a position to a place of action? You know, it's one thing to win over hearts and minds, but another thing to to get people doing something about what their hearts and minds feel and think. Um, that The scene between Michael and Toller is strangely compelling and, and like something you don't see in movies very often. And I, it, it's almost like it has the same kind of compellingness as... Is compellingness a word? I don't know. Uh, in, enjoyability as... Uh, for instance, like Goodwill Hunting with uh, 
the the scenes oh, with yeah. with Robin Williams and uh, Matt Damon in yeah. in the therapy. There's something just compelling about watching two well drawn characters, um, you know, just sit across from each other, uh, and and talk. And you might say, oh, Michael's not a well drawn character because you know he hasn't really said anything yet. But just the fact of what Mary tells Toller, so we know that he wants, she says he wants to kill our baby. And so we're just automatically curious, like who this guy is and and, and what he's about. And the fact that he's so polite initially and seems genuinely interested in Toller's son. And, you know, it's just, it's just, he doesn't seem like a baby killer. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) There's no, there's nothing, nothing is coming off in that way. And so, uh, and, and of course, we're already interested in in Toller's character for a lot of different reasons. Um, yeah, it's it's strangely compelling to just watch these two characters sit across from each other and talk. Yeah, and it's kind of it's Mike and how he feels about um, his in, his involvement in environmental causes and climate change is very similar to Toller and his approach to to faith. I think because they're both these two men that don't come to their beliefs lightly they don't sort of you know buy in whole hog just for the basis of this is how it is right they, right they, they both seem very intentional about intentional yeah. about the way they live yeah um yeah and the, that conversation is so great and toller feels the same way right he compares it to a jacob wrestling with the angel so we've seen toller at the beginning when he's doing the the uh service He's very kind of, you can tell he's kind of going through the motions. Mm-hmm. Even they show people coming through the communion line, and he's like, you know, the body of Christ, the body of Christ, right. like over and over it's again. It's repetitive, and, and we've already seen him, you know, say the line about posting the sermon, yeah. and we've seen him, like, doing plumbing work. <laughs> yeah, fixing the, the sink in the women's room. Right, so we see him going through this daily routine, and I think, I think the first time we talked about this movie, Matt, you said... Uh, I think the line the Toller says in voiceover is like, "It was exhilarating." Oh yeah, yeah. he hadn't felt that alive in, in, in many years, and it's because I think this was your point. Uh, he's tapping in to like an actual meaningful issue that the church and the rest of the film suggests this that the church does have a role to play. Yes. in this issue and he's sort of being I don't I mean he's he, he understands climate change intellectually Toller does yes. but it seems like this is the first time that it's being made you know viscerally real to him and so he feels exhilarated he feels I think what Ghosh talks about in that clip we, play, we played in the last one about once you've been exposed to the literature and the, the the depth and breadth of climate change, you can't think about anything else. And of course, Toller is thinking about this through a religious lens, which you know just opens up this huge can of worms. And that I think is why the refrain becomes "Can God forgive us?" Uh, yeah. yeah. And uh, you know, Amitabh Ghosh talks about that in the Great Derangement that there is a role if it's if these if religious institutions are willing to play this role of trying to bring people um to to accidentally do a pun into the fold when it comes to uh, climate change and, and climate action 
then that role is there for them to play if they want to step into it, right? Since, especially since, you know, governments and other such institutions that should be doing that work are so often ignoring it or just outright doing the opposite. Or they are, uh, what's it go? I've got the quotes right here. I'm glad you said that. Uh, the governments are closed to the forms of reason deployed by contemporary nation states. Uh, Ghosh says, the most promising development in my view is the increasing involvement of religious groups and leaders in the politics of climate change. If a significant breakthrough is to be achieved, then already existing communities and mass organizations will have to be in the forefront of the struggle. And of such organizations, those with religious affiliations possess the ability to mobilize people in far greater numbers than any others. Religious worldviews are not subject to the limitations that have made climate change such a challenge for our existing institutions of governance. They are therefore capable of imagining nonlinear change. We need to talk about linearity uh, in ways that are perhaps close to the forms of reason deployed by contemporary nation states. Um, yeah, so I had you know, I was sort of deep into gauche when I saw this movie and I was like I, I had the feeling like Paul Schrader read The Great Derangement <laughs> and just like sat down and wrote this movie you know yeah, uh, yeah. and that's a part of uh, Gosh's book when he's talking about Pope Francis and how Pope Francis has come out and said you know climate change is real something we should address yes um, you know whether or not his his quote unquote followers uh, follow up on that is kind of yet to be seen. So, <clears throat> just the I just love the scene of Toller leading the tour through the church um, the first time. <laughs> yeah, and it's just that family that's I guess just coming to tour the church on a vacation or whatever. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's taking him through, and he's like, "This is the first communion cup. It's beautiful." <laughs> and uh, the kids, the son is over at the uh, the merch shelf yeah yeah and he's like oh what size are these t-shirts and, and Toller's like oh they're all small sorry i've ordered some more uh the caps are great though they're That's, one size fits all, <laughs> it's one size fits yeah. all. i don't uh, that too and it's kind of a a funny scene you have the dad telling Toller the joke about the uh was it the pastor and the chasing the nun or something yeah the nun chases the yeah. the priest around the church and catches him by the organ yeah, and, and it's, yeah, which is kind of funny, but the... For a church joke, it's... it's, it's right, okay. but that's the second, or there's there's at least two jokes that people tell Toller that are about church, right? There's the one, I think... Jeffers, right? Jeffers says about Martin Luther writing a, a certain... A, a mighty fortress is our God. He wrote right. it in an outhouse. Right. And it's, it's, a, it's a shit joke. Right. Which is... Okay, you're you're pastor pastor to pastor shit joke, right? It's supposed to be this kind of hilarious thing, and but Jeffers if, is laughing his ass off, right? But it's it. also it's also the only time I think you see Toller genuinely laugh. Like it, it, and initially he doesn't; he's just sort of smiling. But then it it cuts to a a sort of longer shot of, of both of them, and Toller's like, <laughs> it like it almost seems like an outtake. Uh, Toller's like genuinely kind of heartily laughing. Uh, See, I didn't even read it as genuine. I thought, to me, it didn't seem super genuine. It seemed like... It's it's the... I'll just say it's the... It's the most... 
Uh, it's the most genuine smile he has throughout the whole movie. You know, the yeah. the, the the only other time you really see him uh, try to smile is when he's talking to Esther, and she's like, "You need someone to take care of you." <laughs> and, he, yes. and he says. She says, I want you to be happy. And he says, I am happy. And he smiles. And it's just like the fakest thing you've ever seen. And he, he does that a lot in the movie of um, stating something that we know to just be completely false, right? Like when the doctor asks him, when he's giving him his kind of diagnosis and says, we have to do this test. He says, well, are you in pain now? And he's like, no, I feel great. Mm-hmm. And you can tell, like, no. You... And he says, do you drink? And he says, in moderation and we've seen him yeah. downing whiskey every night pouring Pepto into his whiskey yeah. that sort of stuff but when he's leading that tour at the end of it the dad puts you know a $10 bill or whatever in his hand like tips him for leading the tour and the way he looks at the money is just so great right because you realize he's so not expecting the tip that the guy reaches his hand out and you think he's gonna like it's like Toller's expecting to shake hands or 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 He's gonna gonna give him something he doesn't know, and he's like really surprised that he's holding money. Yeah, and he's like, "What is going on in my life? What what am I doing? Yeah, to he, be in this position." And he realizes that what has just happened was just a completely commercial transaction. Mm-hmm. Like there was no spiritual fulfillment. It, it was, was just a, a historical site, a trivial sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, it's like touring, a, you know, state capital or something. Mm-hmm. It was no different than that. Yeah, it was. It's yeah. It's kind of like a. It's a tourist attraction, and he's the tour guide. Yeah. Um, so I guess a character. Well, Esther. I guess we can talk about Esther real quick since we haven't really introduced her. She's um wants to be the love interest. Her right. and Toller have had some sort of relationship in the past, mm-hmm. or at least had you know a one night stand. I love that moment where they're having lunch and she's they're alluding to this one night stand or, or some sort of um, you know less than ideal romantic situation and she says do you think we you know transgress do you think we it was a sin what we did and he just adamantly with no hesitation says no I've seen enough real sin to know the difference. And I I just can't tell you how happy that line makes me because just so much you, you just imagine that youth group and, yeah. and what counts as sin in, in a just a vast majority of church is just like, you know, polite language and and sort of just just politeness in general and and these bullet points of rules about uh, romance, romance and things like that. And it's just like the world is dying and this is what you're calling moral and immoral. This is what you're, you're, you're about. Whether or not you say the F word, you know, is, yeah. is dominating sort of the conversations about morality in, in young people in the church. Yeah, and later when Toller finally kind of once and for all blows her off and tells her to you know hit the bricks lady um he says i forget how exactly how he phrased it but says something like your concerns are trivial 
Yes. Like, what you're concerned about is not important. Mm-hmm. And he, he just says to her face, I despise you. Yeah. He, says you're a stumbling you are block. A stumbling block. <laughs> Which I, is, the first time you watch that, you text me, and you're like, that's the meanest scene I've ever seen. Yeah, to, to tell someone you are a stumbling it's block. Like, misanthropocene. Like, you're, you're a literal speed bump on my way to more important things. Which is so egotistical. Yeah, so egotistical. Um, another thing I wanted to bring up, too, though, was uh, going back to Jeffers. And uh, there, the comment in N Plus One's review about the, what does he say, like, played with warmth and understanding or something? Uh, yeah, which was... I mean, Ex- uh, true to some extent. Ethan Hawke's tortured minister runs it for an expansive, welcoming pastor played with warmth and understanding by Cedric the Entertainer Kyles. And I, I think that's another thing he sort of misses the point on, um, that that uh, welcoming and warmth and understanding is a facade. There's a something I noticed the last time I watched it. The first time we meet... Jeffers when Toller come, comes to the church there's a very short scene um, right as Toller walks into his office and Jeffers is talking to some sort of assistant or we get well, the impression the, he's the like an, an administrator or something what's that? Is this the leave the door open thing? Well it's right before that they're, they're clearly looking at the books of some sort and the only thing we hear Jeffers say in a sort of apologetic tone to this guy is that that's my wife's or some, something oh, about his wife. Yeah. And, and you get the the idea I think it's implied that church funds might be being used towards personal yeah, yeah. you know towards private some, jets right Creflo dollars right now. and he he's just sort of holding his hands up like uh, what are you going to do the crazy wife of mine is you know hey, women be shopping <laughs> women be shopping Yes, uh, and then uh, when Eth- uh, Toller comes in, the the guy who's leaving, who he's just been talking to, sort of asks him, "Should he leave the door open?" And or, or Jeffers says, "Leave the door open." So it's implied the door it's implied the door was closed, and so it just further emphasizes that whatever was conversation was taking place was probably a little shady. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then when when Toller comes back. Later on, uh, toward the end of the film, that's when Jeffers is like, who closed the door. You know, and that's when they have their serious discussion. Right, that's when the real stuff's happening. And that's what I want to talk about, because <clears throat> um, Jeffers, when we see him filming that sermon earlier in the film, and he says things like, uh, you know, suffering is weakness. Jesus is never anxious, yeah. Jesus never worried, right? Because he was righteous or whatever. So... At the end of the film, Jeffers confronts Toller, um, and like you're saying, all these sort of the, the little sort of piddly roles that you have to follow, and that's what makes up, you know, faith or religion or whatever. So Jeffers kind of implies at the end that since Toller's been drinking, he's that he's living in sin, right? He's sort of that that's your failing is that you're drinking and mm-hmm. and you're sick and you need to take care of yourself, but. Also, the fact that we found these whiskey bottles kind of says that you're uh, not living up to sort of your responsibilities as a, as a pastor. And he tells him, and this is a line that we were talking about before we started recording, that you're always in the garden 
and for you every hour is the darkest hour mm-hmm. because the whole film is sort of a two hour long uh, you know two month long in the time of the film Dark Night of the Soul mm-hmm. for Toller very ascetic yeah for sure and so Toller is you know always wandering in the garden he's never what what Jeffers says is that you're never in the real world you're not out here doing real things with people that, that matter right mm-hmm. So worrying about, about climate change and doing whatever it is you're doing is not the real world. The real world is running the megachurch. Right, right. And even says you don't understand what it takes to do God's work. And mm-hmm. what he means is run abundant life. Like right. set up the, you know, the tennis matches or whatever that they do. Mm-hmm. And, um, and yet, and yet uh, he's in some ways right about Toller because... Because I think by the end of the film, it's implied that um, that Toller does need to have his sort of newfound sense of of exuberant. Uh, I don't. Maybe there's not another word for it than love. You know, this sort of loving way that he's come into. Uh, does it, it needs to be expressed in the very practical, material world? It's not some abstract. Um, spiritual truth or it is a spiritual truth but it's not just an abstract one it's one that applies to this very political very political issue of climate change and and another scene I want to talk about that I think gets to that point is the we need to sort of contrast and compare the scene of Toller giving the tour to the people and then the talk he has with the kids on the field trip when he starts talking about the Underground Railroad, uh, which I think suggests, and this is my point, that you know the 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 role the Progressive Church played in the Underground Railroad, I think is is Schrader suggesting that see here's one example of of a sort of moral certainty um, that the church has to lead the way on, and it and there is a place for the liberal church in politics in progressive politics yeah and he in the that scene where he has the children help him open up the hatch in the floor where they would hide you know slaves on the underground railroad and he's kind of looking around at the kids and he's saying imagine these desperate families down here huddled together you know trying to survive and it's this kind of uh, two-layer thing of uh educating children on what is sort of truly important and sort of the the like you were saying the the very important material work that a church can do right if it's firm in its beliefs and its Mm -hmm. beliefs are in the right place and that sort of stuff but also this idea of drawing this kind of parallel between um sort of it, it it can kind of sound crass of desperate slave families escaping versus what may in the future be desperate families of climate refugees sure. or whatever it may be. Right. Right. Um, and, and the fact that he's saying this as he's looking around at these small children of like, mm-hmm. takes you back to what Mike was saying of his kid is going to be 33 in 2050 mm-hmm. and these kids will be not much older than that. Right. Um, so yeah, and that kind of sets the, uh, the, the sort of tone for the rest of the film when Toller sort of, finally takes the plunge and decides I'm going to be literally militant now about this. Right. Um, it's also it's also that scene uh, in the church with the 
kids, it's almost, uh, you know, going back to Schrader's transcendental style in film, it's almost like he's opening this sort of repressed history. You know what I'm saying? And so there's a an analog between, uh, I think, I think opening and, and specifically having the kid open yeah. the door to this horrible history is analogous to let's open ourselves to the brutal fucking reality that is climate yeah, change. Literally under the church. Right. 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 Um, and, in, and, and in any movie, you know, when there's a house or a building, Zizek talks about this, how there's always some sort of psychological organization of like basement subconscious you know, uh, whatever, uh, yeah. ground level ego and all, all these things. Uh, so yeah, I definitely think it's, it's interesting that he, he's late, you know, that scene's late in the film and he's just like, fuck it. Let's open this door. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> let's, uh, you know, sunlight is the best disinfectant. All that sort of stuff. Um, something we need to talk about since we haven't even brought him up yet is Balk. Um, yeah. I can't. What, what's his first name here? Edward. Edward Balk, B A L Q. Um, and he is representative of kind of all that is wrong with the world. Yes, he's uh, infuriating. Oh yeah, and uh, and all too recognizable in these parts. Um, and what kind of the two scenes that are paired together um, because they kind of follow each other chronologically in the film is one is Mike's memorial, so Mike kills himself. Which the fact of his suicide is just sort of... We can kind of circle back around to that because it's such a, a big thing to talk about. But he leaves Toller his last will and testament, says this is the memorial service that I want. They have it at Hanstown Kill, which is this area that has been so polluted that it's just been abandoned and they're like boats rusting and the box says no that's not included the EPA the EPA approved it yeah it's fine which you know the EPA we can bring that up later but um Mike's memorial they uh Toller reads a passage from Job it's Job 38 4 through 7 which talks about um where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth Mm -hmm. that sort of stuff uh using Job I think is also relevant since Toller is sort of Suffering throughout this entire film, yeah, um, and then they have the choir from Abundant Life come out and sing "Who's Gonna Stand Up" by Neil Young, mm-hmm. which is it. It sounds weird when they sing it, but it, again, it's one of the only instances of actual music mm-hmm. in the whole film. Yeah, it's the it's that Abundant Life choir providing all the music. Yeah, so you know, teenage kids singing this really, um, you know, uh, revolutionary Neil Young song about take down the oil companies and all that stuff. But in in the meekest way possible. Oh, yeah. Like, you know, she even has the little, like, uh, I don't know what you call it, where she... Uh, little, like, Esther blows thing, the little... Yeah. What's that called? Like a pitch pipe or something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where, yeah. It's very milk toast and, and meek, and yet it's about taking on the <laughs> the fossil industry. Fossil... What What is the... What were we talking about? What's the book we were talking about last? Oh, Fossil Capital. Fossil Capital. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Andreas Malmbach. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then that leads into um, Toller and Jeffers meeting Balk at this diner. And it opens up. There's 
we've talked about this before, but not on bike. Um, there's a lot of scenes of cars, like extended long shots. Not long as in perspective, but long as in time of, of cars. Mm-hmm. And this is one of them when Balk is getting dropped off by his driver. And his driver pulls up to the diner, stops, shuts the car off, walks around, opens the back door, Balk gets out. His guy gets back in the car, starts it up, and leaves. And it's so... Something I hadn't noticed is, like, that's such a, you know, 1% type thing. And yet... Power move. And yet, where's he going? Millie's Pancake House. Millie's Pancake (laughs) House. And he walks in, and he does something that I think is just... It's it's wow, like Chef's Kiss. Schrader did this. He goes in. He open. He uh, orders the apple pie, and he tells uh, Toller and Jeffers, uh, "Well, you know, the apple pie is uh, you know, it's it's uh, it's local. mundane, but you know, it's organic. It's local, right? Right. And it's just this that idea that his little personal kind of small ethical choice is somehow going to cancel out just the." irreparable massive damage that his corporation has done yes it's oh god it's just it's perfect yeah and there's a larger and I think I I told you in the last episode to remind me about this the larger the bigger commentary in the movie on or maybe I should just say the bigger metaphor in the movie for sustainability which we talked about a little bit last week as just this you know uh, plan for compromise um it's the Pepto Bismol and the whiskey. Exactly, right? <laughs> exactly. A, a so big symbol in film. So, so we were talking earlier about you know what the reviewer in N plus one misses, and and what he misses is that the metaphor is is that uh, the cancer is to Toller what climate yeah. change is to uh, the Earth, and and so we see then that the whiskey that Toller continues to drink is sort of representative of like fossil fuels just you know just all this harmful stuff that is uh, contributing to the decline of the body that is the earth the body of the earth Um, and so he's you know he knows he has stomach cancer I guess and and he's drinking Pepto-Bismol and not only is he He's not just drinking Pepto Bismol. He's continuing to drink whiskey at the same time. Yeah. So not only is the solution to his problem vastly underestimated, but it is being done simultaneously with the poison causing <laughs> yes. the problem. And that is just the perfect metaphor for what sustainability is. It's like, yeah, you have all these people, you know, like like Curtis White says, uh, engaging in deal making in a moral abyss, and and. Uh, that's I guess a small victory it's better than nothing maybe uh, but but we've continued to do all the things that are wrong simultaneously and negating any uh, progress that, that would have been made yeah and uh, that's kind of um, symbolized in the film more by Balk and Balk Industries and how when they're having their kind of little argument in the diner, Box says, well, I'm in the energy business, so you know, give me some credit. I know what I'm talking about, which is you know, bullshit. But also, <laughs> later when Toller, toward the end when Toller goes on a tour of the Balk factory or whatever mm-hmm. it is, is kind of a final psych up. Right. Um, and you hear the tour guide lady talking about how, you know, Balk Industries has undergone all these sustainability initiatives and all that sort of, mm-hmm. which again is just 
a band-aid on a fucking forest fire. Like, it's not going to do anything. Right, it is just the bureaucracy swallowing the rhetoric of, you know, of of counterculture, you know, one element of the counterculture. Yeah. Like, yeah, we used, you know, 30% recycled paper, so shut up, hippies. That kind of thing. Um, but back to the scene in the diner, because I think it's just it's just a great scene. <clears throat> Toller looking at this kind of program with all the former first reformed pastors in it, um, and it's asking, well, did God give them strength? Like, are they in, ever in a similar situation? And then Balk asks, there won't be anything political, will there? And then he has a printout from a website, which I thought that was just kind of weird. And maybe right. it's supposed to be like, here's how stupid and wasteful this guy is that he's printing out a news story from a website. Um, but um, Toller kind of gives him what for, and Toller even says in the voiceover, why couldn't I just remain silent? Right. But that's when Balk says, well, you know, it's a, climate change is a complicated There's issue. There's been a lot of loose talk about the environmental change. Yeah. And, Toller sa- and he says, well, it's, it's a complicated issue, and Toller says, but it's really not. Not really. Yeah, and then he, he sort of goes off on this this whole tangent and is making all these good points and Balk his response is to lose his cool mm-hmm. to shut it down just to yell and say well there, there won't be anything political at the the reconsecration and then he does a great sort of uh, some great whataboutism gymnastics in that he's talking to Toller about Michael and says well it reveals that Toller had been talking to Michael and he, he found his body and all that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. And Balk says, you counseled him and then he shot himself? Mm-hmm. And it's just a brilliant... And he says, well, you should worry about yourself before you cast judgment on others. And it's just right. such a crazy... Which like, is which is him attempting thing. to use the, the famous or popular biblical line about... Um, you throwing know, stones. Or, no, it's throwing stones or, or don't, uh, what is it? Uh, there's like a, don't take the thing from your eye before you criticize something in your brothers or, I, I butchered the hell out of that, but it's something about clean the crap removing, out of your removing the shit from your own eye before you criticize it in someone else's. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so he's, he's using, he's bastardizing, um, biblical logic to discredit a sort of biblically sound argument yeah and that is tollers and it, you know this extra level of irony that balk had balk in his uh, you know his corporation had way more to do with my with mike's suicide than toller ever could have and something we really need to talk about is i think a very important scene at right as uh the police are coming to or the EMTs or whoever are coming to take Michael's body after Toller finds it in the woods. Toller's talking to the police officer yeah. and he says that he knew Michael's father. Mm-hmm. And Toller says, Oh, really? What was he like? And the police officer says, He was a businessman, morbid <laughs> son of a bitch. Yeah, must run in the Must family. run in the blood. And just that quick little scene there, I think gets at a major point of the film and that is that Michael's despair is exists in the same world uh, as sort of the rational calculating uh, business world that his father inhabited uh, 
and that and that as long as he remains in that world he will not uh, be able to escape that that very rational despair like toller says the answer to um despair is not reason but courage and and michael lives in a very reasonable world extremely reasonable uh, and i think it reminds me of al gore and an inconvenient truth and how when when we meet michael and he starts going on his sort of hackneyed uh climate rant we see all these like computer the, the computer and charts and graphs and he's you know expressing these sort of platitudes and it's like his despair is in cap- can be encapsulated through powerpoints and you know what i'm saying <laughs> and that, and that's literally just, quantified his literally quantified and uh and i think that's a a message you know as much as i respect uh, al gore's overall message of <laughs> we got to do something yeah. um i do think that um you know he exists what is it Ghost says like he's limited uh, Gore is limited by the forms of reason deployed by contemporary nation states That I think that's exactly what Ghost is talking about there and it's also what Toller is talking about right that reason is not right. going to be the way out um, and just it, it's always it's fascinated me how Al Gore was made into such a massive joke, mostly by uh, you know Trey Parker and Matt Stone and South Park of the Man Bear Pig episode and all that. Right, and that the fact that he was kind of the first major political figure to say anything at all about about climate change, and I, he I, became a punchline. I haven't seen it, but my brother is a big South Park fan, and we had talked about Man Bear Pig and the political implications, and uh, he texted me. Not long ago, apparently the new season there's basically a retraction. Oh, he, well, he, he he was saying, my my brother was saying that uh, I don't remember the specifics of it, but that there's another episode with Man Bear Pig, and that it uh, kind of walks back what they said, and and it, he said he got the feeling they were sort of saying we were wrong about this. Well, that would be great. And I, I I've been meaning to watch that. I need to ask him. They're known as being kind of like weird libertarian like just having kind of dog shit politics yeah it's it's like they never got past the sort of you know 15 year old cool nihilism or whatever yeah um and it also because uh, i'm i am fascinated uh by this idea of how to how to depict climate change and also just how to talk about it in general from like a rhetorical standpoint um and we've talked about it and i haven't i, I need to read her book i just haven't had the time to sit down with it yet uh naomi klein writing uh this changes everything and you're saying that that is like it took you a year to read it or something and that's it's way more than that i i started reading that book in 2015 and i finished it in 2018 um with you know like and it's i i don't want to i don't want to dog on it in any way because it is such a monumental work like it's almost 500 pages oh, yeah, yeah. it's extremely well researched it's well written but my my criticism and I think what you're referring to is that 
um, and and Jonathan Franzen talks about this in his one of his essays in the end of the end of the earth, which was a recent release. Um, uh, firstly, Franzen says, uh, you know, she is one of these people who has keeps setting time frames that keep getting breached, and then they keep setting new time frames, yeah. and it's like it's hard to take you seriously after after you keep you know, breaching these self-set time frames. Uh, but also, there's so many statistics in that book. Um, uh, this changes everything, which again, it feels weird to like say anything negative about this book because it's, it's right. <laughs> you know, like she's yes, right yes. about like everything, but it, it's almost, it, it's not about the information. It's like the approach. Exactly. That's uh, what I, I, look at it or try to look at it from a rhetorical perspective of is this effective communication right right and we need to we'll, we'll get into that um, big time I think when we talk about Darren Aronofsky's film Mother yeah about audience and effectiveness and reach and and rhetoric and, and all that stuff um, but you know Naomi Klein and uh, William T. Volman we've talked about the carbon ideologies they write these massive tomes that are, like you say, they're right and they're really well done mm-hmm. and they're purposeful, but they take a lot of stamina to read. You have to have an interest, the sort of, you have to be inspired to read them. Um, so it can be difficult. They're not really entry level texts for this kind of stuff. Um, whereas, you know, Gauche is still kind of complicated, but it's pretty accessible, I think. I think Elizabeth Colbert, who writes uh, Phil Notes from a Catastrophe and the, the sixth extinction, the sixth, the sixth, extinction yeah. um, is more accessible because it's a different kind of writing. It's more kind of like journalistic as opposed to academic or uh, you know research based. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, I just wanted to bring that up. Um, I think we should uh, touch on a couple of things. One, the ending. But before we do that, I think we need to talk about the magical mystery tour. Well, well, and and those two things I think go very much hand in hand. The the final scene. And the magical mystery tour. You were talking. I can't remember if we were recording when we started when we talked about the camera being stationary or static. No, we talked about it on okay. at the beginning of the and um, the two times in the movies in the movie when that's not true are the magical mystery tour and the ending. Um, and I think I think these moments are brilliant. I think. Schrader creates a a set of expectations about the formalism and the linearity, if that's a word, right, uh, of the narrative. You know, there's there's nothing really calling attention to the style of the film in terms of camera movement or anything. We talked about the filminess of the film, and and that there there is that sort of meta. Uh, Aspect, but but there's nothing flashy going on, uh, and then all of a sudden, you know, Mary tells Toller about this game, or yeah. I don't know if it's game, but this thing that yeah. uh, she and Michael would do, where they would lie on top of each other, trying to make as much of their bodies touch each other as they could, and 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 it's emphasized that it's not a sexual thing, um, yes. 
And when they do that, and Toller's <laughs> slightly drunk, I think, when they, when they do this, and that's why he's like open to it. Uh, what do we what do we see? We see a, a sort of bird's eye view of several different. It starts off, if I'm not mistaken, with like really pristine natural landscapes, yeah, like beaches and rainforests. Uh-huh. Well, for the first thing we see, which kind of breaks breaks us out of the film a little bit, is when we see them levitate. Right. So right. they're so uh, you know Mary is laying face down on top of Toller. And we watch them sort of like start to lift off the ground, right? Which is in a movie up to that point, it's unlike anything that's happened in, and, the, in and the movie. And that's what's so brilliant about it is that we we've been talking about this idea that we have to get beyond reason, and yes. you know what I'm saying. And and then so integrated into this into this plot is this, you know, we we've been living in this very rational world, sort of formal. In, in movie terms, formal world, and and then all of a sudden, we break into this supernatural, magical, magical we, mystery tour. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, you know, we see the uh, these like nature scenes that are very kind of, you know, beautiful, like something you'd see on the the wall of a hotel or something. And then it cuts to cars like traffic jam, gridlock, and then to just like a mountain of tires like used tires and then scenes of deforestation of you know giant machines kind of carrying off the trees <clears throat> all that sort of stuff and that leaves you know we, we get a close up on Toller's face and you see his kind of anguish that he feels thinking about these things um, but it, it kind of reminded me of something he says earlier in the film and I, I can't find the exact quote but he says people don't want an experience as much as they want a feeling like they want to feel something. Um, he says they don't want experience. They want emotion. Something like that. I think he says emotion. And it's just yeah. this idea, I think, of people don't want the actual experience of the thing. They want to just, you know, feel good, right? They mm-hmm. want a specific kind of feeling, right? They want to, you know, make America... Great again is not an actual experience. It's a feeling of we're going to get back right, to and, and it doesn't life. even it doesn't even necessarily have to be a good feeling. They want the commercial version of whatever feeling it is. So so if they have despair, they listen to a an emo song, and then then that's their despair. You know what I'm yeah. saying? It's it's not necessarily an an optimistic thing. It is a superficial thing in all directions yeah, yeah. of emotion. Which is yeah. kind of funny that the the film would be saying that, and we don't want. Toller's despair, but we want to spend two hours watching him go through it. <laughs> well, well, and and I think the the pleasure of the movie is is simply recognition and honesty. You know, it's just this when 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 the movie cuts to the scene of uh, Toller and Michael having this conversation, and we start to hear Michael despairingly lay out this case. I sort of like I was watching the movie alone the first time I watched it and I was like is this happening like I I just did not think it was within the realm of possibility that someone would or not would but could put this in a movie that gets widely distributed like I it's unprecedented um, yeah. and the whole kernel of their meeting is 
his wife saying he wants me to get an abortion because mm-hmm. he doesn't think this is a world it's that a, we should bring a child into. It's a ballsy into. movie. Uh, yeah, and it's just... It, it uses all of these extremely um, you know, dark, kind of hot-button things, so it has that kind of abortion thing, and that's kind of a throwaway thing. Like That doesn't even really go past that first meeting. But then we have like... Well, because the, the protagonist is clearly pro-life yes you know and i think that's a that's a a a rhetorical choice on schrader's part um toller is always the apologist for the sanctity of life yeah and i I think that is uh um very deliberate (laughs) yeah but then um so that in the magical mystery tour uh, just to kind of wrap up, wrap that up a little bit, but this kind of connection with another person on this extreme kind of level, right? And it's it sort of, it kind of even goes beyond a religious experience. It's sort of this fully mental as well as sort of a tactile, just complete whole body experience, right? Um, and so to go from there to, to talk about the end a little bit. And so Toller gets Mike's suicide vest that he left, that, that, that his wife had uncovered, and he Toller took it to sort of keep things safe. And he decides, well, now I'm going to, you know, as he says, I'm going to don the, the full armor of God, and uh, I'm going to blow up this reconsecration ceremony. I'm going to kill Bach. I'm going to kill the, the mayor, the governor, whoever it was, and all these people. Right, right. He, um... Puts on on the vest just to talk about the symbolism of that a little bit. So he puts on the vest under his alb, the the thing, the white thing, right. um, and he has two patches. So one patch is Mike's patch of the uh, the environmental martyrs right. that have been killed in Brazil. And you know, we talked about Rob Nixon and environmental martyrs a little bit last semester. And Mike, yeah. last guy, there is again. <laughs> damn it, last episode. So institutionalized yeah. are you? And so last episode, you're like Brooks from Shawshank. <laughs> absolutely, I just can't function outside of the walls. Um, but so Mike's got his patch, and he talks about martyrdom, and he makes that comparison between religious martyrs and environmental martyrs, and some of the overlap between the two of protecting God's creation. Mm-hmm. So Toller puts that patch on and he also has the patch that is, I can't remember what the wording is, but it's, it's for a fallen soldier. It's like for his son, right? It's the little, mm-hmm. uh, kind of triangle folded American flag. And it says, it doesn't say never forget, but it says something like that, like right. fallen, fallen soldier or whatever. Um, and he, you know, gets ready to go, martyr himself basically and and that scene is, is uh, particularly interesting to me because I believe it ends when he's trying on the vest it's it's sort of a close up and then it cuts very briefly to a wider shot and if you if you notice he Toller clicks his heels yeah. in military fashion and and I think the suggestion Schrader's making is that while his sort of intellectual views are intensifying on climate change he's still he he's he's in a way he's existing in this world that's been very much problematized by the film that michael inhabits of this sort of quantified and what i'm what i'm getting at is is uh, even militaristic um orientation to you know you're you're 
it's it's like their head's in the right place, but their heart isn't, you know. Yeah. Um, and and that's another thing is that Michael. You know, we sort of talked about him. You know, the police officer says his father was a morbid son of a bitch, must run in the blood. But also, Michael's position is never. Um, I'm sorry, like like the bare facts of his position are never argued against. It's it's only his like we were talking about Naomi Klein. It's it's the approach. It, yeah. He's not wrong per se but his approach misses something um, and so we get yeah. we, we come to the the end and Toller getting ready with the suicide vest and he sees, sees Mary walking to the church decides he can't go through with it and goes to plan B and just uh, Ethan Hawke's acting at that point is fantastic because he almost seems possessed as he's trying to figure out what to do next Right, he's like, so like, no, no, and like, well, takes off the and and again, and his the uh, the journey there in that last little scene is almost like if we accept the metaphor of Toller's body as the earth, uh, it goes from this sort of light poison of alcohol, right, yeah. to uh, industrial uh, torture of. Of uh, drain cleaner, barbed wire. Oh, the other barbed wire. Right, barbed wire, famously associated with World War One and sort of industrial warfare. Yeah, uh, and and so you and know, also we go, we go from fencing this... in the West, right? Like literally regimenting nature. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So we go from this sort of poison to uh, industrial. Uh, I don't not poison, but. Uh, uh, dominion or, or whatever you want to say uh, to um, and, and we've already seen the possibility of like him blowing himself up which yeah. could be nu- you know a sign of sort of nuclear the atomic threat yeah. kind of thing yeah, uh, yeah so, so I think I think again that review in N plus one you've got you've got <laughs> like I don't think that this movie is rejecting the idea that that change can happen um, I don't think it's about him and Mary like just about him and Mary falling in love I think we have to read Toller as emblematic of of his body as the body of the earth and uh, and read a little more into these uh uh, the the metaphors I think Schrader's crafting here. Yeah, and so you know he he wraps himself in the barbed wire, does a sort of mortification of the flesh thing, mm-hmm. and he's going to drink the glass of the drain cleaner that right. we'd seen him using on the toilet earlier. Mm-hmm. And then Mary comes in and she says Ernst, which is like the first time he's been called by his first name, right. I think. Um, and we've got to we got to talk about Ernst Toller, which I don't have much <clears throat> to say about Ernst Toller other than that he was a uh, left wing. Playwright in yes. the 30s, I believe, who killed himself yes. um, when he was 45. Not, I think Toller's 46 in the film, but uh, he he killed himself because he found out his siblings, I believe, were sent to concentration camps. Yeah. And I read just on like Wikipedia or something that his play. Um, Hopla? What was it called? Hopla? I don't remember. 
anyway, there's a line that I've got written down somewhere. Um, yeah, the mother character in Hopla, We're Alive, says a line uh, in the play. She says, there's only one thing to do, either hang oneself or change the world. Uh, <laughs> which is essentially Toller's whole problem. Yeah. Like, that is the that is the issue. It's like, we were talking about uh, Camus earlier. Yeah. That, that line, there's only one thing to do, uh, hang yourself or, or change the world, is remission of uh, the opening line to Camus' The Myth of Sisyphus, which is, I butchered it earlier, but I was trying to think, what is it? In front of me. There's but one truly serious philosophical problem, and that is suicide. Judging whether life is or is not worth living amounts to answering the fundamental question of philosophy. Yeah. And that's kind of, like you're saying, a toller, because he sees it in this kind of uh, black and white, you know, dichotomous way of he can either change the world or he has to die. Right? Um, and in this this ending scene where we have Toller and Mary running into each other's arms and they're bracing and they're kissing the whole time Esther is singing Everlasting Arms. Mm-hmm. Which is you know this kind of haunting rendition of the song. What I what I, how I see that is I don't think you can read that, or at least I can't read that as like a literal A to B love story because then it just kind of becomes comical. You know, of boy meets girl, they fall in love after her husband kills himself, that sort of thing. I think you have to read it more, or at least I have to read it a little bit more metaphorically, as two people kind of coming to terms with this idea of, of living courageously or sort of being courageous, trying to live righteously. Right. And, and, the and, love is kind and of spiritually, of I think yeah. the word spiritual comes up when Mary says, um, uh, I think Toller asks her, were you an activist too? Like Michael? And she yeah. says, I share his beliefs, but not his despair. He, was not the spiritual. She said, "I was the spiritual one. Yeah. I grew up in church, so that sort of thing." And uh, and I remember feeling the first time I watched this when I saw the ending that I was rooting for them, like romantically, more than I knew I was. Like I didn't know I wanted that to happen until it did. Um, and it's and of course it's because, like you said, the lo- if this is a love story. Only yeah. it's it's kind of superficial, uh, and it's not about like the review in N plus one says about taking you know solace in relationships. Um, it's about Toller sort of transcending the limits of this sort of ideology of uh, reason and and the despair it brings, and and sort of choosing to live anyway, sort of accepting spirit and courage and love uh, and just coming into a, a truly kind of authentically spiritual which is grounded in the material world uh, way of life and uh, yeah so I think there's just it's just a very to me rewarding ending and, and what I love especially is that these transcendental moments these the Magical Mystery Tour and then the end uh, are so emphatic on the importance of the body 
yeah. the material. You know, they get this transcendent experience of the magical mystery tour when they are engaged bodily, and it's not necessarily sexual. It's just it's just bodily. It's materially, and, and then at the end, of course, they're you know they're it's like the big. It's like Schrader appropriates the sort of trope of leading man, leading lady, f- grand finale kiss. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it, but it just embodies so much more than some sort of romance. Uh, and just in the imagery of Toller bleeding through his robe and, uh, you know, Mary's pregnant, which, right. you know, the fact that Immaculate Conception, Mary, and all that. Right. Oh, that's, that's, yeah. That's another thing I wanted to say about when, when I said Michael is not uh, completely dismissed and we were talking about the names Michael is like the, the archangel yeah. or whatever uh, he's sort of the warrior angel the protector uh, in, in, in the Bible but uh, one thing I think to consider is that this this child that's that's uh, Mary's going to have I think He's going to have, because they confirm, they say it's a boy, right? Yeah. So, so he's going to have the DNA, the genetics of Michael, the sort of, the sort of hyper rational, but also this sort of, you know, through its biblical associations, warrior type thing. And even Ernst says, you know, little Michael Junior. Right. At one point, but will be, he he will he will be Michael nature. And Toller nurtured, you know what I'm saying, yeah. um, and, and and I think it's it's implied that that's a good thing, uh, that that there is this melding of these two worlds of like uh, scientific factuality. We have to look at the the data of of climate change, but it has to be in the fold of, of spirituality. It's, it's that, that gauche, you know, it goes back to gauche saying, um, you know, these, there are limits to what rationality can do in terms of, of climate change. And the church is the only still barely breathing institution that has the, the ability to mobilize people. Uh, and so, so I think the, the child that Mary's going to have is this uh, blending of, you know, scientific, the scientific truth of climate change, but then also the spirit that it that must uh, be infused with it for for anything to happen. Yeah, and then to sort of to wrap that up, we end with a, another one of uh, Schrader's kind of bold filmmaking moves, which is to cut to complete silence and blackness just right in the middle of the kiss and the song is still going and then nothing blankness and then more kind of classical style in credit yeah it's almost like he it's almost like a a built-in alternate ending uh (laughs) you know what i'm saying because like that's what would have happened had had toller gone through the suicide bombing or whatever it's just like nothingness right yeah, and so and so that juxtaposition of like, you know, this musical number, the camera moving, and they're kissing, and uh, yeah, all that with just abrupt nothingness. Uh, yeah, and it kind of goes back to the message of the film, I think, which is 
nothingness is the the end destination, but it's in how we get there. Like that's you know where the magic happens. So yeah, yeah, that's a good how point. How we choose to get there. Um, and just to end real quick, um, <clears throat> we mentioned Camus and just a, a quick little snippet from the myth of Sisyphus about art that I think gets at our mission for the podcast, but also kind of wraps up the film nicely. Where uh, Camus writes, it is merely a matter of being faithful to the rule of the battle that thought may suffice to sustain a mind. It has supported and still supports whole civilizations. War cannot be negated. One must live it or die of it. So it is with the absurd. So it is with the absurd. Sorry. It is a question of breathing with it, of recognizing its lessons and recovering their flesh. In this regard, the absurd joy par excellence is creation. Art in nothing but art, said Nietzsche. We have art in order not to die of the truth. Uh, let me follow up with some more Nietzsche here. <laughs> since since we're reading Nietzsche, as if we didn't have these underlined sitting right next to us. Yeah. Anxious, yet not despairing, we stand apart for a brief space, like spectators who are permitted to be witnesses of these tremendous struggles and transitions. Alas, it is the magic effect of these struggles that he who beholds them must also participate in them. Dang! (laughs) Shots Uh, fired. So, I guess that's... I mean, I feel like we've we've done enough for now. Um, So I guess that that will wrap up uh, episode two, First Reformed. Um, Next episode, we we came to an agreement that we'll be discussing... Christopher Nolan's 2014 film Interstellar. Right. So, um, so whereas we had almost nothing but uh, praise to heap on First Reformed, <laughs> I, I think we're going to have uh, a a very different set of things to say about Interstellar, and that's sort of what why we picked it. I think we want to use First Reformed as an example of of like we said in the last episode if a movie can even do what we want it to in terms of you know climate awareness first reform does it i think um and i think basically what we're going to say next week with interstellar is that uh it's it's just the opposite of that here's a a sort of uh, sampler of harmful ideologies about uh human beings relationship to to the environment yeah so we'll be talking about that next week um follow us on twitter please uh at anthropod tweets is the handle what is it anthropod tweets anthropocene's was taken it's a it's a band i googled it the other day so it's the band i tried to get anthropocene's but it would have it would have had to have been anthropocene's one and i was so anthropod tweets anthropod tweets is is what you want to look for uh, available on iTunes and on SoundCloud coming soon to Stitcher as soon as I get all that squared away as soon as um, we get paid <laughs> as soon as we get paid um, so one last thing to mention and it's something that goes back to the film of Toller asking at one point where were we when these people were elected talking about elected officials so um, coal lobbyist former coal lobbyist Andrew Wheeler was named EPA chief recently in uh, what is just an outright crime against humanity, I think. It's right up there with Rex Tillerson being Secretary of State at one point. Um, 
so we know where the loyalties of these people lie you know and it's not with the earth and the people that live there um so yeah i guess that's kind of it tune in next week yeah same same bat time bat time same bat network uh take it sleazy